Welcome to the Growth Cap Podcast, where we chat with CEOs, investors, and other key industry leaders to uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. I'm your host, RJ Lumba. In this episode, we chat with Kyle Griswold, a partner of FTV Capital and a top 40 under 40 growth investor of 2020. FTV Capital is a growth equity investment firm that has raised nearly $4 billion since inception and has invested in 114 high-growth companies across enterprise technology and services, financial services, and payments and transaction processing. Kyle and I chat about some of the investment areas he is most excited about, how FTV Capital drives value for the companies it backs, and how FTV has built a strong firm culture over the years. We hope you enjoy the show. Kyle, thanks so much for taking the time. Very excited to chat with you. You know, what we typically do is kick off with a little bit of background. I'm sure our audience would really like to hear about FTV as well as yourself, since we haven't had you on before. So if we could could start off there, that'd be great. Thanks, RJ. Appreciate you having me today. So I'm a partner at FTV Capital and lead investments across our sectors of focus, those being financial technology and services and enterprise technology and services. I'm entering my 15th year at FTV and have spent my entire career doing deals in these same sectors, either as a banker or an investor, but much longer as an investor now. A bit more background on FTV Capital, we are a sector-focused growth equity firm. So we only spend time in the areas that I just mentioned, so enterprise tech and services, financial tech and services, and we're also growth-oriented investors. So we're trying to find companies that are past that venture stage and prior to more mature traditional private equity Typically, that means companies that have a defined product and technology. They're a leader in relatively well-defined market. So we're not typically taking that technology or market risk, but we're probably taking is execution risk. And that's part of the reason why we come and invest is to help uh, de-risk the execution and help founders and entrepreneurs scale their businesses. Our average company is still growing about 50% annually, so pretty robust. And we think we're particularly good at sourcing these types of companies, structuring, winning these types of deals, and then growing companies of this type in this stage due to the focus. And we have about 20 plus years deploying that same strategy. And over our history, we've raised about 4 billion, invested in 120 companies, and we're currently investing out of our sixth fund, which is a $1.2 billion fund. I guess the last thing I just say on FTV is the beginnings of the firm are a bit unique in that we raised our first two funds solely from financial services enterprises. And those organizations served as a strategic network for our fund and the companies we invested in. So 20 years later, we call that our FTV Global Partner Network. It's comprised of over 500 operating executives and 150 of the world's leading financial services companies. That network is pretty unique and provides access to very interesting and specific market intelligence that helps us shape our investment themes, provides deep sector and company diligence, and and frankly, most importantly, helps drive commercial introductions for our portfolio companies to accelerate their their sales cycle. Yeah, that's truly a a unique feature to FTV. How often is it that you kind of employ the resources of that network of of executives? And and is it continuous throughout kind of the holding period of a certain investment or does it happen to be heavier on the front end 
or on the you know the, the middle of, of the holding period? How how typically does that get executed? It's a great question. So first of all, taking a step back, it's something we take very seriously. So we have an entire business development team that dedicates their time just to that whole process, making sure that our contacts are up to date, that we're constantly networking with these folks. It's kind of a symbiotic relationship where we're constantly talking about these investment themes with them. They're, they're talking to us about the specific pain points and opportunities they see in their business. And then when we find a company that actually addresses that opportunity, that need, it's actually like a very natural introduction, which is part of the beauty of the entire process. But to answer your question directly, it is typical that there's a full onboarding process. And we try to get our companies in front of the best, best fit relationships early on, but then we're constantly mining those relationships over the entire investment hold of the company. Got it. So it could be, you know, customer, uh, you know, this network could be helpful on future customer acquisition, but it could also be helpful in kind of how to improve operationally. Absolutely. And what we typically find is that some of the operators oftentimes are interested in helping those companies in a more hands-on way, but then having the access to the institutions, those are all the end clients of the companies that we invest in whether it's a financial technology firm or an enterprise technology firm. Because if you, if you actually look at the data, the financial services industry is probably the second largest consumer of enterprise-grade technology outside of the public sector. So if you actually have great relationships in that sector, and it's not universal to um, financial services in the way that we've developed our network, but that's where it started, that's a pretty strong vertical to have a foothold. But you know, just to make it a bit more tangible for folks, we're making hundreds of introductions a year, and we've struck hundreds of commercial arrangements over the course of our history. It typically averages four or five a company. And because of the size of these organizations, it could be you know, a seven-figure, in some instances, it's been an eight-figure annual revenue account. Yeah, that's, that's tremendous, the impact you can have with the network. And, and so that you know, it plays out kind of that impact plays out into kind of the returns that you experience. I'm always careful to talk about, you know, returns, but, you know, clearly FTV has done a remarkable job given the growth in in AUM over the years, you know, and, 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 by the way, congratulations on on you know being on the the top forty under forty. It's it's well deserved, but would 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 love to hear a little bit more about kind of as you you know, enter into a relationship with a CEO, you know, I guess more formally as an investor, how do you look to kind of improve? We mentioned the, the network and maybe this is kind of a little bit more along those those lines, but, you know, what do you really, what do you look to, to, to do for uh, and with the CEO? Absolutely. Um, so obviously business development is a piece of it, but it is one of many areas where we try to add value. The first piece that we just try to make sure that we're always bringing to the table is that deep domain expertise. Because of how focused we are, we should be coming to that table with as much industry expertise as any investor, simply because of the focus. And we think that makes us a more highly engaged board member, given that experience. And we think we have a better macro view into the understanding of the different market nuances, but hopefully better micro perspectives around competitors, business models, and product positioning. Oftentimes, when we're investing in a company, 
we've been monitoring the overarching sector. Uh, sometimes it could be for over a decade, and we've actually watched it evolve and change over time. So we think that helps us make better recommendations on the strategic direction of the company as a board member. We also have a full operational team called FTV Propel, which is a group of former successful operators out of the space. They're full-time employees of FTV, but they're at the full disposal of our portfolio company. We're very founder-friendly, so it's not their election. This, these are not people that we force upon them. But as you could imagine, there's a pretty voracious appetite to pull down on those resources. And we try to bring value in three specific operating categories that we think are particularly important for our stage investing. That's go-to-market, sales and marketing support, technology, so thinking through product development and the scaling of the technology infrastructure of a business, and human capital, scaling the employee side. We think if we can build out and scale those three areas, we're going to have a lot of success. You know, additionally, we're helping companies build out their financial reporting capabilities. We're helping them with equity and debt uh, follow-on financing after our deal, if appropriate. We're helping them with M&A, market mapping and target identification, but also the diligencing and deal crafting, if, if that's part of their strategy, product expansion, geographic expansion, and then straight through to the you know, all the exit planning around uh, the negotiation and exit of that final deal. So, and again, it's all uh, should be informed by the the deep domain expertise that we're bringing to the table. We just think that's a big part of being able to add the right the right type of value. And um, you know, the financial services space is 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 one that's been evolving over the last probably a hundred years, but you know, more so with technology over the last few decades, the evolution has been more rapid. You know, and it, along with that, we've seen more capital providers, you know, enter this space and really focus on it. You know, what really, and it seems like there's, you know, maybe two two parts to this. One is, you know, clearly there's some of the high flying fintech companies that we hear about all the time. Some of them are more consumer facing fintech platforms, and. And, and we we tend to have like a little bit of, of a, a bifurcation in terms of who's investing in what. Meaning, you know, you have venture, and then you have more growth equity, and then obviously you have more you know private equity. But would would like to hear about you know how you think about the broader kind of financial technology space and and where you play on it. And then the second piece to it is how big is that kind of segment of the market that you play in? Yeah, I'm happy to answer that. It's a great question. And there's clearly a lot of focus on financial technology uh, has been over the last several years. I think in some ways, COVID has accelerated certain thematic themes that we've been chasing for a while, but the adoption on both the enterprise level and the consumer level. First, I want to take a step back and, you know, over 50% of our investment activity on a company basis has actually been into what I'd consider enterprise, B2B, enterprise, uh, business and corporate related technology. So we have a very specific lens that's been informed over 20 years that comes from working with financial services organizations. But those perspectives have helped us ride and and invest behind themes that are effectively sector agnostic themes. And it just so happens that 
we got insight from Bank of America or Credit Suisse around the way that they're actually trying to navigate it. So we are actually uh, sector agnostic on the enterprise side, but we do have a lot of know-how in financial technology and in financial services. Um, we do focus as a firm just on B2B opportunities. So we don't focus on the consumer side. There's a tremendous amount of opportunity on, on, on the consumer side. It's just, it's not where our focus has been historically. We believe in the focus and our whole model partnering with large enterprises, it, it takes us away from that, takes us away from our strength. Now, that being said, are we investing in really interesting technologies that are getting their enterprises closer to their consumer and helping to digitally enable them in a way that they can actually compete with a lot of these um, con consumer direct models, particularly in financial technology? Absolutely. And a great example of that is a company called InvestCloud, which is a company that helps wealth managers digitalize their data, but also their client communication and management and all of their reporting. So a lot of firms have been adopting what Invest Cloud brings to the table from a technology perspective. And they're just a technology infrastructure provider because they're trying to compete with all these digital first brands now. And you know, another great example would be a company called Bought by Many in the digital insurance space that we've invested uh, in as well. So there is a broad digitalization theme that is actually driven by the consumer but is actually informing the types of companies that we're investing on in terms of enterprise technology and corporate related technology. That's that's very helpful. And you know, you touched on the insurance space. You know, InsurTech is a is a fast growing area. You know, what what are the areas you're you're most excited about? Um, well, we just invested in a company called Bought by Many, um, and they are, believe it or not, the one of the leading providers of pet insurance which is probably a sector that there are a lot of folks that have a, a ton of experience in, but it's one of the fastest growing segments of the insurance space. And the proliferation of just folks having pets and then wanting to actually insure them because it's so expensive in terms of their long-term health care, this market has actually exploded. But interestingly enough, back to the prior point, they are a market leader in terms of that type of insurance and the very specific underwriting that's necessary. But a big part of their competitive edge is their fully digitally native platform. So everything from client acquisition and servicing, the application process, the underwriting, everything's been digitalized and automated, leading to better service and experience for the client. It's more efficient and uh, uh, in terms of the workflow and the underwriting on the company side and then they can pass through the price savings to the clients as well. So it's kind of a win-win. Yeah, Pat, and, uh, that's crazy. And so were you looking at the company prior to COVID? Because COVID, had, I think, saw the it enabled, helped enable like kind of the, the puppy purchases. It, believe it or not, it was done about a quarter or two before COVID. And this company was growing like a weed well before that. And the sector was exploding uh, as well, just on a macro basis, because of these longer term secular themes. If you actually look at the data, it's fairly shocking in terms of the uh, adoption rate of pets even before COVID. And then the price, the, the price of healthcare has been growing at a faster rate. And particularly some of the catastrophic stuff is just incredibly expensive. Folks want to find a way to actually provide that. But when they actually get hit with those bills, 
it's incredibly difficult. So there's actually a pretty strong secular trend that we were following. And then COVID has been a great uh, tailwind for them as well. Got it. And just to, to better understand, they sell to pet insurance companies? This company actually goes direct to consumer. Got and it. So it is one of the few companies where there is a direct-to-consumer component, but their, their technology is very much an enterprise-grade technology, and they're not just a kind of like a, a marketing technology provider that's that's just sourcing clients. They are very much the underwriter and administrator. And then they actually work with insurance companies on the back end from a balance sheet perspective, if that makes if that makes sense. So yeah. this is actually one of the models where they work with a number of insurance companies to actually be able to ultimately have the balance sheet to provide the, the insurance, but then they directly source the clients, administer and underwrite the clients on their own. So they have the full kind of underwriting engine that they built into their technology. And do they work on the other end of the back end of it? Do they work with traditional insurance companies or are these ones specific to the pet space? They work with a number of insurance companies. It's actually more and more insurance companies are getting into this space. The nice thing about it from an insurance perspective is it's fairly uncorrelated to other insurance risk. So insurance companies are constantly managing their balance sheets and trying to actually allocate capital and risk in different ways. And not only is this an interesting insurance line because of the growth dynamics, but for an insurance company, it's great because the risk is uncorrelated to a lot of their other risk. It's crazy, just anecdotally, you know, given the, the whole kind of COVID dynamic and people buying, you know, puppies and, you know, even ones that, that own dogs currently are, are, are buying more. Or, you know, I've heard of situations where dogs were 14 years old and, and the, the owners decided to still give them a, a $9,000 operation. You, you can't put a price tag on it, right? It, it's it's a pretty incredible thing. So it's um, they're providing a great value proposition. And for those that can afford it, they will actually spend the money and it's pretty painful, but there's a bunch of folks that can't even afford it. Yeah. And so does the, 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 the insurance, not to spend too much time on this, but it's just like really interesting, but does the... Is the premium reasonable and does it cover most of the potential ailments that a pet could have? It is reasonable. And and because they're so efficient and because basically the first platform that's built themselves digitally natively, all on new technology, they're able to pass along the price savings to the end consumer, right? They're, they don't have the burden of a traditional insurance company and the infrastructure that those guys have traditionally set up, even though they work with them on the balance sheet side, because otherwise it's just challenging to reproduce the massive balance sheets that insurance companies have. So they are very price effective. The other, without going too deep, like just kind of brilliant nuance of their model, which anyone who has a pet will appreciate, they actually have defined underwriting for different breeds, which is like an obvious thing for anyone who's ever owned a pet. They know that there are different issues and different like mortality rates and different health issues with each breed. But traditionally, like pet insurance companies, because it's pretty new space, have not actually underwritten, underwritten in different ways. So their underwriting is actually more precise. It involves actually capturing a lot of data across a bunch of different pets to actually understand what that underwriting is supposed to look like. And so you have to have kind of the deep domain focus. You also need to be building it on technology that has the end architecture to capture all that stuff. Fantastic. I, I, I love it when I hear about, you know, very unique companies and one ones that, you know, seem to have developed kind of 
the early advantage or, or, or the the competitive first mover advantage. How was this? How did you find this one? This one, yeah, I didn't speak too much about uh, probably another aspect of our model, but we are deep into what we call proprietary sourcing, and other growth equity firms are probably familiar with that. So, you know, we're very happy to get a call from a banker and work with an intermediary. And Lord knows we will use those folks in certain instances when we're exiting businesses when they're a lot larger. But typically when we're finding companies that are in our sweet spot for our initial investment, doesn't make a ton of sense to use that intermediary. And we find that it actually disintermediates us from the actual company and building the relationship with the founders and the entrepreneurs. So about 80 to 90% of our activity is proprietarily sourced. And that starts with you know, everyone on the deal team defining certain themes. We're very thematic. We had a theme in insurance that we, we had certain technology features that we're looking for and then certain subsectors we were looking for. But we're doing that across themes. And then we actually, at this point, we've put a lot of process workflow and management around how we outreach people and turned it into a science now where you've even wrapped a technology platform that we built internally called ProSourcer that allows us to actually talk to thousands and thousands of companies a year to cast that wide funnel so that ultimately we can actually hone in on the most interesting opportunities and then hopefully build, in many instances, multi-year relationships with those companies so that when they're ready to actually fundraise, we have already built that relationship. We know the company, we know the sector, we have the conviction. And then that helps us not only diligence the company, but they can diligence us. And oftentimes then we are kind of top of the list when they're looking to raise capital. And oftentimes they're not going to actually hire a banker. So at this point, we're actually talking to about 8,000 companies a year, again, through a, a process of people working really hard, putting a workflow and management around it. But now it's even, you know, some of the outreach is automated, some of the, the company identification and the honing of the funnel is automated. But then we kind of belt and suspender that with deeply thematic stuff. And if it's not going to fall into those themes, we're not interested in it. And then oftentimes, though, when we find a theme we like and we find a couple companies, we'll basically talk to every single company that does that. And then we'll actually talk to the larger enterprises that do it as well. And then we can quickly come to a conclusion that, wow, this is really differentiated technology, or this is a really differentiated business model. This is a company I want to invest in. What other areas are you most interested in? So one area where we spend a significant amount of time historically is electronic payments and transaction processing. This is an area that for FTV, we consider almost a full practice area in its own right and have invested in about a dozen companies in our firm's history. The high-level thesis there is that all modes of commerce are, electronic, are electronifying at different but pretty undeniable penetration rates as we move closer and closer to a cashless society. So we have a couple of subsector themes that we find particularly interesting around e-commerce, cross-border, software-integrated payments, and B2B payments. And those subsectors are growing at even a faster rate than the overall theme. We just invested in a company called Paddle that enables SaaS software businesses to sell and deliver their software digitally across 180 countries. What they really are is a revenue delivery platform that facilitates and automates the entire commerce and fulfillment process 
but they handle everything around the checkout process, invoicing, the recurring billing feature, payments, including the cross-border transactions and the handling of the foreign exchange, tax compliance across dozens of countries. And then they even have tools to help manage risk and fraud as well as client churn. It's a pretty turnkey solution. And because of that becomes pretty mission critical for a SaaS software company, and by extension, incredibly sticky, which we always love. So its client retention numbers on a gross and net basis are phenomenal. And the other thing we love about the thesis is that it's effectively an indexed bet on the continued proliferation of SaaS software, because that's all their clients. And also the continued appetite for them to sell globally on a cross-border basis, which we think is only growing as well. And then finally, we, we spend a ton of time in cybersecurity. It's been a longstanding theme for us. COVID and a number of high-profile attacks over the last year have only reaffirmed the importance of this sector. We have a half dozen or so existing cybersecurity businesses in the portfolio that we've invested in over the last five years. One of note is ReliQuest, a leading provider of enterprise-grade cybersecurity technology. ReliQuest technology helps to integrate an enterprise's existing cybersecurity ecosystem to provide a unified set of data and reporting on a single plane of glass for a more effective threat detection and response. So what does that all mean? The pain point for most of these corporations is that they have an enormous sprawling technology footprint. It's often siloed. And by extension, their cybersecurity footprint is also sprawling and siloed. They have multiple tools and platforms that are not talking to one another from a data perspective. And it's actually pretty dangerous. ReliQuest helps unify the data and reporting and make sense of that noise. And then once it's actually unified, it allows for the automation of repetitive tasks, with which ReliQuest enables, which helps uh, speed up incident response, but also taking out um, all of the false positives that happens with, with existing cybersecurity technology. It also just in general eases the burden on internal cybersecurity teams at these enterprises, and they're just completely overwhelmed and overtaxed. So this company has had tremendous momentum since we invested about four years ago. They've grown 8x over that time frame, and we recently recapitalized the firm last year with KKR to allow for a greater investment in technology operations and sales. Now, switching to, to FTV, and I know we're running up on time, but maybe you know one last question here. On FTV, uh, you've been there for 13, 14 years, and I believe this, this was your kind of second you know, professional job after graduating. It's always a testament to the firm when their employees or their investors are there for the long term. What do you think, you know, and I think it's, it's, it's good for, for CEOs to see, it's good for LPs to see when there's a cohesive team. What do you think it is that has enabled, you know, FTV to retain its talent? And, and what is it that, and maybe this kind of relates, but what is it that, that helps FTV, you know, win deals and, and partner up with, with some of the best companies? Yeah, I'll, I'll try to answer that in two ways. One, I think if any investment professional is any good, they want to be on a winning team. So if if the platform isn't any good, and if you're not bringing some type of, I think, differentiated advantage to the table, folks aren't going to want to stay, right? So I think the first thing is like, we have four key pillars that we talk about. One is the domain expertise. One is the sourcing model that I touched on as well. 
the Global Partner Network, which I touched on, and FPV Propel. We think that combination, people have pieces of that and they may do it in different ways, but that combination we think is incredibly powerful. And even as we've grown, we've been able to not only invest in great companies, but continue to source these proprietary opportunities and either find stuff that people are not seeing, uncover themes that people are not thinking deeply enough, or even find something that maybe there is some competition, but they go with us because they see that our model is differentiated or we found them before anyone else and we developed that relationship. So I think the platform and the model at FTV is great. And then I think we've worked really hard and, and frankly, the founders and the partners you know, that came before me at establishing the right culture. We, it's always been a model where we have grown the team from within. If you kind of look at our webpage and the different bios, you'll see a lot of the partners started at the firm, either as associates or pretty early stage in their career. And when that's built into the DNA of a firm over the course of 20 plus years, I think not only not only do you have the opportunity to move up, but it just changes the actual way that senior folks work with the junior people. Because it's not a, hey, this is a two or three year program and we're going to churn you out. And then we'll source people from business school or we're going to pull people from another firm. We're happy to do that. And we've grown fast enough where we've been able to actually hire externally as well as provide an amazing promotional path from people within. But it's very much a part of our core DNA to have that teaching, mentoring model uh, for the junior folks who are at the firm. And that's certainly the experience I've had and the experience I'm trying to create now for all of the junior and mid-level people at the firm. Yeah, no, that's that's great to hear. You know, I think in, in certain cases, firms do have kind of more of a, you know, structured in and out and then sometimes back in. But, you know, to for someone to have the possibility of that, kind of longevity is, is I think, a, a, a huge advantage. So, Kyle, thank you so much for taking the time. Congrats again on the, the 40 Under 40 Award and best of luck in, in 2021. Thanks for having me, RJ. I appreciate it.